Hi everybody, Andy here. Just before we start this week's show, we have two exciting announcements to make. The first is about who our special guest is this week. She is a brilliant Canadian writer, screenwriter, showrunner, now also a first-time author. Uh, she is Monica Heisey. And her debut novel, Really Good Actually, is out within the last few weeks, and it is, unsurprisingly, really good actually. It's all about the life and travails of a woman who has become a surprisingly young divorcee. It is extremely funny. It's kind of, you know, accidentally, um, like, snort milk out of your nose funny. It's great. Highly recommended. So we hope you enjoy the show. Monica was great, as you will hear shortly. The second announcement we have to make is that we are doing a live show of No Such Thing as a Fish very exciting we are going to be at the hallowed british library in london they are having a season all about animals and as part of that we are doing a show called fantastic beasts it's going to be dan james myself and a special guest to be announced it's going to be on the 21st of april and if you don't live anywhere near the british library there is also going to be a streamed version of it so just go to no such thing as a fish.com slash live. You will see there the tickets are available for our British Library show. So check it out. Okay, that's it. That's all of the announcements. On with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and Monica Heisey. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, that is Monica so my fact is that in ancient Hebrew times, men could get a divorce if their wife had been alone in a room with another man. And I was really interested in this fact because my my divorce lawyer told me that this may still be true. I couldn't find anything backing up, but she basically said if he could prove that um, a man and a woman had been alone together in a room for more than an hour, it could be reasonably assumed legally that adultery had occurred. I think we should just say that we're not all in the same room at the moment. I think that's very important. So bring no. <laughs> I think people were a bit desperate because it used to be that you could only get divorced for five reasons, one of which was adultery. Mm. And so I think people just could stretch it a bit to be really just trying to get out. It's really it's the history of, of what you needed to say or, or allege or agree that you had been doing to get divorced is absolutely mad. For a long time, it was only adultery or, or adultery was the, the only substantial grounds. And then they introduced other ones a bit later on. But there was one rule where if, if one of you had committed adultery, then your partner could divorce you. But if you both had, oh, yeah. they might not be able to because legally the, the divorce was kind of a, an acknowledgement that one person had committed wrong and the other was being... Uh, like if, an if eye like, for an eye mm. and a shag for a shag. and a... Well, Yeah, and if you'd both <laughs> done it, then and you could, you weren't allowed to lie saying, oh, I've committed adulterally, def, uh, adulterally, sorry, that's a Ned Flanders version <laughs> of adultery. You weren't allowed to lie saying you'd committed adultery, that's perjury. So they made it very, very difficult. Wow, that's religion for you. <laughs> and, and also it was a very specific um, definition as well. Adultery legally is um, a married person having full sex with someone of the opposite gender. So if your husband had a gay affair and you were a woman, 
you couldn't sue him for divorce on grounds of adultery, but you could sue him for unreasonable behavior. No, <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. This thing in the <sighs> Jewish law, this is from the Mishnah, which is the oldest uh, written collection of Jewish oral traditions. And the thing is that because if the woman had been in a room with another man, in theory, there can't be any other witnesses, right? Because it's basically one person's word against another person's word. And okay, right. you have the perjury thing, but what they would do is they would give you the ordeal of bitter water. Uh, and this was to tell if you were telling the truth or not. So they would give the woman Ooh. some water with some dust in it. And <laughs> it's not really clear what the dust is. It might be bits of um, barley. It might be bits of something else. Uh, and the idea is if Ooh. the woman drinks it and the water is so bitter that she has to like spit it out, uh, then that proves that she was in the wrong. God, it's like witch trials. What? What? A little bit like that. It's a trial by ordeal, they would call I feel it. like I yeah. give myself this test every morning when I try for one sip of the water that's been out by my bedside table all night. I'll tell you, the worst divorce situation I read about in this uh, research was uh, to do with if you were divorcing the king of Thailand. Oh, yeah. Well, the problem is, is that if you go to divorce the king of Thailand, you have to obviously accuse the king of Thailand of reasons for the divorce. Unfortunately, by law in Thailand, you were not allowed to accuse the king of anything. <laughs> so when the current king's divorce case was going on, I think he was the crown prince at the time, he went to court and he made all these accusations against the wife. And the wife had to just say, uh, yep, he was fine. Couldn't say oh, anything. No. Couldn't defend herself. Yeah. <laughs> so he obviously he obviously won. I've got a fact about the king of Thailand. Do you remember um, the king and I, that, um, the, the play yeah. or musical play? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's based. It's about someone called Anna Leon Owens who went to work for the King of Thailand, uh, and the real life Anna Leon Owens was the great aunt of Boris Karloff, who played was it Frankenstein or yeah yeah yeah. yeah. It's just a fact. <laughs> okay, That's a good sure. fact. Yeah. <laughs> it's just two people you wouldn't expect to be related to each other. I reckon. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. Like Ben Elton and Luke yeah. Longley are brothers-in-law. That will mean nothing to what? no one except Australians. Yeah. I've never heard of Luke. Who's Luke Longley? One of the great Australian basketball players. Played with the Chicago Bulls in the Michael Jordan wow. period. You know, he's a he's a legend. One of the great Australian basketball players. How big is this cohort? <laughs> There's three of them. And, uh... and one of them is related by marriage, but not blood, to Ben Elton. Amazing. Gosh. Why didn't you pick that as your headline fact this week, Darren? That I've been was... pitching it for nine years, you guys, <laughs> swatting it away every week. I found a modern yeah. uh, divorce story, which I, I can't believe that this is true, but it was reported in a bunch of places. So this is to do with a, a Bosnian couple, Sana Klarik uh, and her husband, Adnan. And Adnan had not been happy in the marriage, and he started looking around for love, and he went online. And so he started chatting to someone online. He used a fake name just to make sure that no one could clock on to who he was. Uh, he met someone. He said, I suddenly was in love again. It was beautiful. I thought I'd finally found someone who understands me and who's in a similar no. situation in a bad marriage like I am. So they decided no. to meet up. No. And they meet up. And he sees sitting in the spot where his online love should be, his wife, who has also gone online, created a pseudonym, looked for love. They found each other. And what's remarkable is that is how they found out that each of them were basically cheating on each other and divorced off the back of it, despite oh. falling back in love with each other in this online scenario. They looked at it as negative. Reverse pina colada song. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's like a Richard Curtis film until the last sentence, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. Super plot Amazing. twist at the end there. Oh. There was a guy in New York. He was from New York anyway. And um, he divorced his wife uh, in Dominican Republic. Uh, and she didn't find out for 22 years. So he filled what? in the form and got her to sign something which she didn't know she, what she was signing. And he got an official divorce. And then she only found out when she got a letter through about the house that they owned and her name wasn't on the deeds. And she sort of rang her lawyer and said, what's going on? And he said, well, it turns out you're not married and you haven't been for 22 years. But they, they can't have been living together. Yeah. What? Yeah. He, just, he just didn't tell her that they weren't married anymore. And <laughs> what she said of the case, and I couldn't find out what in the end happened, but she said that she thought that he'd done it deliberately so that he would own everything. If he left her in the future, she wouldn't have any rights. That's what she said. But then oh, he stayed that's... with her for decades? Yeah, because apparently, I mean, I can't really speak for him, but what she said is that the marriage was kind of happy, but he just did it as a as a kind of backup in case he needed it in the future. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> That's bad, that, isn't it? Pure Fair evil. Enough. I became really obsessed with unreasonable behavior as a category. Um, <laughs> so they changed the law in... Um, in 2022 and now you could have a no-fault divorce in the uk which means that you don't have to identify a guilty party you can just both agree that you want to dissolve your marriage hmm. but prior to that you had to pick one of these five categories kind of whether or not there was something going on and unreasonable behavior is such a very capacious category and i think 51 percent of women filing for divorce in this country that was their grounds they're only 36 percent of men and a lot of it has to do with gaming People were divorcing because either their husbands were gaming too often, but a lot of them, like a non-negligible portion, were people who were having digital affairs. So you're basically meeting someone via, not by Fortnite. You like can't your Sims happen, avatar is having oh sex with gosh. someone else's Sim. <laughs> so what are the are there limits to this? This uh, what was it called again? Un unreasonable behavior. <laughs> unreasonable oh, behavior. What are you worried about, Dan? Ex excessive <laughs> Ben Elton memorabilia purchases from eBay. Is that, do I need to watch out? I do think it's a very bendy category. It basically mm. uh, is like a prolonged commitment to behavior that is a problem to the marriage. So that can include like actively building a life separate to your mm. partner. If you're, mm. if you're developing too many not shared interests or you're really going hard on, um, I don't know. You have a new hobby and you're going away and pursuing rock climbing yeah. all the time and your partner has no interest in it whatsoever. Eventually, after a certain amount of rock climbing, I suppose it can become yeah. unreasonable. I think uh, reckless yeah. spending counts as well. Oh, so absolutely. If, uh, if you're spending loads of money on Ben Elton memorabilia, Dan. <laughs> Damn it! I'm done. Yeah. Did you guys ever hear of the Brighton Quickie? No. <laughs> this is a divorce practice. And I d I've done a fair bit of reading about it. I can't quite work out how real it was. Basically, in 1923, the law was changed saying you could petition on adultery only. It was the only grounds for divorce. And that led to this thing where it's kind of like Monica's original fact about the being in a room together. You would go down as the husband. You would agree to be the adulterer. You'd book a hotel room in Brighton because it's easy on the train from London. Uh, you spend the night there with a woman you don't know. Um, you don't have sex or anything, but there's a hotel receipt saying you've booked a room for two. The next morning, maybe you're witnessed by the chambermaid. Could two pairs of shoes outside the door. 
exactly exactly um and there's all this uh, there's then a small body of evidence that you can use to get your divorce and then thames link back yeah you haven't even got to commit adultery but (laughs) uh you will be divorced in due course but i just can't tell how much it actually happened if at all it's in a few novels and it's it's written about at the time but it's not also how important is the chambermaid in this like are all the rooms in this hotel packed with people going for a bright and quickie and she's got to sort of be she's the witness yeah she's the witness for like 40 things a day where she has to was that yeah no i saw the shoes outside that door (laughs) and then was it the pancakes i I took a tea and they were on top of the bed but the (laughs) there was a pillow on the floor so that's suggestive yeah i read that in delaware and colorado you can get your marriage annulled if you did it for a dare Mm. Um, but in none wow. of the none of the other forty eight states is that explicitly in the rules. Like probably you still could get an annulment if you said that, but it would have to go under something else. But in those two states, it explicitly says it is illegal to get married on a dare. I mean, all marriages are kind of a dare. Are they? <laughs> yeah, well, that's I, what a proposal is. It's a big dare. Yeah, I dare you to stay with me until one or both of us dies. I bet your wife is wishing she shows truth now. Yeah, every day. <laughs> I got a thing which is um, one of a really classic Marvin Gaye albums, which was called Here, My Dear, was made within a divorce proceeding whereby Marvin Gaye didn't quite have the alimony that he needed to pay for his child. And so the agreement was the next album that you do, your wife, who you're now divorcing, is going to get half of the money, royalties and the upfront money from the album itself. And he decided, well, I don't want her making any money. So I'm going to do a quickie album, basically. I'm just going to not really do anything good. It's going to come out and it's just going to be panned by the critics. No one's going to like it. And then suddenly... He got fascinated by the notion of this album and ended up putting more heart and soul into this album, possibly than any of his other albums. He was really hands-on. He wrote the lyrics. He never writes lyrics for his songs, according to uh, the stuff that I was reading. He never really was hands-on with playing the piano, but in this album, he insisted on doing the lyrics, the piano, and it was panned at the time, but it's been it's one of those albums <laughs> that's been reviewed by everyone since. You know, the Rolling Stone has named it one of the best 500 albums ever made three times in lists that they've released, and it constantly appears on these lists now but it was a it's a pure divorce album pretty cool that's the story of the producers the film the producers done we've just done you've you've given us a fact which is the the song pina colada and now you've given us the film the producers but you've translated it to being about marvin Gaye. no 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 we see you we see what you're doing they they made it bad he made this good during the process The producers was I wonder bad. at what point he decided to start making it good. Like, if he's like, oh, I'm going to make it so bad. And then at, <laughs> at what day did he realize, oh, I'm actually very invested. I'm really trying quite hard now. Yeah, I don't know. I guess if you're an artist, it's going to be really hard to go, I'll just put out a shit album. Like, that's that must be a painful thing to do, to make a decision on. I don't know. Some of them manage, don't they? But I think, like... <laughs> I think um, if he didn't normally play piano and didn't normally write the lyrics and then he started doing it, he must have not normally done it because he didn't think he was as good as the people who were doing it, right? Originally. And then when he started doing it, he's like, oh, this is pretty good, actually. It's also a little bit self-myth-making. Oh, I tried to make an album which sucked (laughs) and instead I made one of the 500 greatest of all time. Oh, that's just me. Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that the same fingers are responsible for the clicks in the Adams Family theme, the bongos in the Mission Impossible theme, and the xylophone in the Simpsons theme. 
<laughs> the same human fingers created three of the great artworks of the 20th century. I just think Absolutely. it's unbelievable. I think it's so great. I'm Would you so- say that you uh, play the xylophone with your fingers? I was going to question that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his, his name was Woodfingers Richards, and he he was incredible. Um, you know Woodfingers Richards? When he clicked yeah. his fingers for the Ellen's family, did he set himself on fire? <laughs> um, Emil Richards, he was a hero of percussion. I should, I should say where I got this. It's um, via a brilliant uh, piece published each year by a guy called Tom Whitwell, which is a 52 things he learned each year. I, I think I may have mentioned him before, either one or two or three years ago. But anyway, it's a brilliant list. And uh, this is one of the facts. I just couldn't believe it. And Emil Richards, it turns out, uh, born 1932, died 2019. In between those two dates, had the most amazing musical career. Yeah. He played with Frank Sinatra. He toured with George Harrison. He was one of the most amazing session musicians ever. The list of people he played with is just... He played with Charlie Mingus, you know. He was proper into the scene of jazz and blues. And and then, yeah, as you say, he went on tour and also played on three George Harrison albums. He was inducted into the Percussive Arts Society Hall of Fame in 1994. That's a very hard Hall of Fame to get into. Is it harder to get into than the Australian Basketball Hall of Fame? <laughs> yes. Um... I imagine to get in, you have to do a special not to get into the Percussive <laughs> Hall of Fame. <laughs> But no, yeah, what an extraordinary guy. Yeah, it's amazing. Frank Zappa, Doris Day, The Beach Boys, The Bee Gees, Blondie, Ella Fitzgerald, Marvin Gaye. I don't know if it was on the oh, the album. Oh, imagine. What? I think I think Marvin did all his finger clicks on that album. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> uh, he was just incredible. His I love this. His autobiography was called My Life Behind Bars. Oh, oh, very nice. Oh, oh uh, you may have come across this in the course of your research. Do you can you guess what kind of animal he wanted to come back as in the next life? Oh, I didn't see that. I did not something, see that. Something percussive. So uh, woodpecker. Awesome. Oh, yes. such a good, oh, such really? a good guess. I wish it was that. Imagine it's just totally unrelated. No, no, no. It is related Normal? to his percussionist life. Oh, it is. Um, okay. An octopus. Oh, oh, so you can have more that's arms. That's right. good. Well, woodpecker is better, actually. Yeah. Six of them are legs in an octopus. (laughs) (laughs) He had the world's largest collection of percussive instruments. Really? This guy, yeah, he had seven hundred over seven hundred and seventy. I don't know if that's seven hundred and seventy one maybe. You probably he he had um an ang klung, a bulbul tarang, a chimta, a flapamba, a jangu, a mbira, and a pak havaj. (laughs) <laughs> when I was looking him up, they said he's a he plays the vibraphone, and I went to look up what a vibraphone was, and the first thing that just said not to be confused with the vibra slap. <laughs> and what is that? Always getting them fixed up. A vibra slap is. Have you ever seen that instrument? It's like um a piece of wire bent into a U, and there's a wooden ball oh, on yeah. the end, and it hits the box. Yeah. So oh. that's a vibra slap. Cool. And a vibraphone is more looks like a xylophone. Right. I don't know how you would confuse them. They don't look at all alike. <laughs> and they're both so obscure that I feel like it's very unlikely you'll be talking about one and not know what the other one is. Like either you're not talking about these at all or there's no risk of you confusing the two. That's a good wow. point. What a yeah. guy. So he did the Mission Impossible theme tune, uh, the bongos yeah. on that. And I was looking into the Mission Impossible theme tune generally. So there's this fact, which is that the the beat of the song was written to the Morse code of M and I. 
So can you give us the what it goes like for anyone who doesn't? Know? Andy, you're you're a bigger fan. I always end up doing Bond by accident. Can you do it quickly? Do Do you mean the bit that goes bam 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 bam? Yes. Bam, bam, dun, dun, yeah. Dun. yeah. So it's it's dash dash dot dot oh, is the thing that's for it. Great. But the guy who wrote it, Schifrin, he wrote that whole song. He says in three minutes. Wow, really? Yeah. You often hear that with a few musicians where they say, I just banged that out and, and it just came to me as a fully formed piece. And that happened. And that happened with Mission Impossible. So that's quite cool. And same same with um uh, the James Bond theme. That wasn't written in a quick time, but it's by a guy called Monty Norman. And he actually, which is, I really like this. He was hired by the um, Bond people to come up specifically with this theme. And they took him out to Jamaica on a holiday. And he met Connery out there and Ursula Andress. Because they were were filming... Dr. No. Yeah, they were filming Dr. No, the first one out there. And so he was brought to meet them all and and get a vibe of it. And he ended up just using a previous tune that he had written for a completely different adaption that Mm. never got used. It was a stage production of V.S. Naples' novel, A House for Mr. Biswas. That's the original James Bond theme. And it was played on sitar. Is that the one that goes... Oh, because I know the original lyrics of that are something like... I was born with an unfortunate sneeze and Yes, that's it. My parents said that I was made the wrong way around. It ah. was like the- Oh my god. This is a bigger repurpose than Candle in the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> this is a big shift. Yeah. It's so strange. And I think yeah. at the end of the song he sneezes so much that he falls into a lake or something of I that did tune. Not know oh that. right. Wow. Yeah. This guy, Monty Norman, he also wrote an autobiography. So Life Behind Bars, very good title. Do you know, <laughs> Andy, you look like you might know the title of his autobiography. No, I don't. Is it musical and James Bond theme? No. Well, I'm not going to get it. No, it was called A Walking Stick Full of Bagels. Okay. Yeah. You know that... well, without knowing the context, that is not a good title. <laughs> well, I think that must have been a classic phrase back in the day. You're like a walking stick full of bagels. And what does that mean? How would a stick be full of anything? There we go. Yeah. So many questions. I bet they were all answered in the unpublished autobiography and we uh, are yet to find out. I think the best autobiography title I've ever heard was Tori Spelling's autobiography. Storytelling by Tori Spelling. Genius. Really good. Really strong title. I've got it. I got it off that title. (laughs) But that doesn't go down well in the divorce case. (laughs) He's got Tori Spelling's autobiography. Um, Have you guys heard of the village of Kongthong in northeast India? No. This is a village where every child is given a theme tune. Oh, cool. So it's a little village. It's really cut off from the rest of India. I don't think you can get there by car. I think you can get there by boat. Um, But it's in the middle of a jungle, and people would forage for broom grass, which they would sell on. And so a lot of the time you would spend in the jungle, sort of walking around probably alone. And the thing is, in the jungle, it's quite hard to hear people for long distances because it all gets soaked in by the trees and so they came up with this different way of telling people you're around by having a different tune that you would whistle or you would shout or whatever and so when you're born you get your theme tune and then for the rest of your life whenever you're in the jungle people will make this little do 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 you'll be like oh that's me (laughs) that was the simpsons so cool yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, i I think lawyers will be in touch with that kid <laughs> he was from the Simpson family of um, Kong Thung. That is so cool, isn't it? That's awesome. Unfortunately, it's kind of dying out because people now will connect with each other using mobile phones, so they don't need these theme tunes so much. Mm. 
Yet I again, am. the internet's ruined it all. <laughs> <laughs> I was having a quick think about songs that use the old handaroos as a kind of iconic bit of it. And obviously, if you're thinking theme tunes, the Friends theme tune, I'll Be There For You um, yeah. by the Rembrandts. There's uh, like a clapping bit, right? Yeah, so it's four claps. Um, apparently, there's a bit of controversy because Courtney Cox did five claps on a TV show once and it sent the uh, writers of the song mad. But... The uh, song I'll Be There For You, it was actually a song composed specifically for the TV show, and the Rembrandts had very minimal input into the writing itself. It was the actual creators of Friends who wrote the song, and it proved to be such a iconic theme tune that everyone was begging for it to be released in the... Yeah, I bought it in the charts yeah. when it came so, out. Did so you? what, yeah, what yeah. that was was they had to go into a studio and write a whole song, because there wasn't a whole song. It was only the theme tune bit of the song. They needed two more verses oh, to be added in. Really? Yeah, so so it was a backwards constructed full song that ended up coming out. That's so interesting. Yeah. So it was 40 seconds there long. There was originally. like a time in the 90s when all the theme tunes used to come out and you could buy them for the charts, like the X Files did around that time yes. as well. And they all did quite well in the charts just because people thought, oh, I like that song. Yeah, I love. I mean, the the, the X Files is my favorite theme tune of all time, and it turns out so the guy who composed that's called Mark Snow. Yeah, Mark yeah. Snow. And David Duchovny claims, I think this is tongue in cheek. I mean, it completely is tongue in cheek, but he says there are lyrics to the X Files theme tune by Mark Snow, <laughs> and these are the lyrics. Um, the X Files is a show, 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 <laughs> with music by Mark Snow, 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 Snow. <laughs> Those are the only two lyrics that we know of, according to the Colvany. <laughs> um, do you guys know what composers of TV theme tunes hate? Um, I guess. Oh, when they when on TV shows when the continuity announcer goes next up on oh, BBC Three. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. That's a really good point. Um, I'm specifically talking about the skip intro button. Okay. Which is very oh, controversial. Oh, of course. They get furious, those guys and gals, about the uh, skip intro. Because Netflix found out that users were frequently fast-forwarding a bit because, you know, if you're watching three episodes in a night, you don't want to see the theme tune three times. So Netflix claims, I can't quite believe this, skip intro is pressed 136 million times a day, which cumulatively saves 130 years of human time. Hmm. We never... Especially the shows where they've put some proper effort into the into the yeah. intros. I think you lose quite a lot from not having those intros. Can you imagine watching Game of Thrones and not having that amazing theme yeah. tune with all the stuff happening and then just going straight into the shagging? That's... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it really sets the vibe. I think grooving to the Sopranos theme is like maybe 30% of what I like about watching the show. Obviously, yeah. the, rest of the other 70% is that it's groundbreaking, beautiful human drama, but the theme tune is also up there. It's a bop. I agree. We, yeah. we stand up in our house. We stand in silence for the, every theme tune. <laughs> it's a huge respect in this household. Um, Monica, aren't you um, show running on a show at the moment? I just finished show running on a show, yes. Are you going to get to pick the theme tune? I think we're going to have like proper opening titles. So we're going to have to do a whole, we're going to have to figure out a whole thing. Yeah. Cool. I've really been shown my own limitations in this area because my description is like, if we, I want it to sound uh, cool. <laughs> no other feedback at all. Well, I got, I got some advice for you, Monica. If you're working with the sound person, do a, do a secret thing here, which is do actually write lyrics to whatever the theme tune is but don't uh -huh. put them out because you could then claim 50% royalties on the song. This is what Gene Roddenberry did with Star Trek. He wrote lyrics for the Star Trek song. They never used them. 
And any time a royalty check came in, he was a co-writer of the song. So he got 50% of everything. And the song Suicide is Painless, the MASH theme tune, it was used in the Robert Altman movie, uh, commissioned specifically for that movie by Robert Altman. And he tried to write the lyrics for it, couldn't crack it. And so he asked his son, Michael, who was 15 years old at the time, to write the lyrics. So Michael did that. And as a result of that song not only being used in the movie, but then the long-running TV show with Alan Alda, he says, Altman says that he made $70,000 for directing that movie, and his son has earned more than a million dollars over the years just from that being sold. Those lyrics are good, though, aren't they, for Suicide is Painless? But G. Roddenberry, is he not just stealing half of the credit? Feels like like, it, yeah. it. it feels like the workers and the musicians who have done all this work and he's just like, well, I'll pretend that I've written some lyrics and take half that's the money. quite cheeky. It's very cheeky. Hey, that's the business we're in, guys. And Monica? Is it? Oh. <laughs> that's Hollywood, baby. God, <laughs> Business is business. Um, just quickly, uh, Ed Sheeran has written a theme tune to James Bond despite no one having requested <laughs> that he do that. Which I think is quite sweet. Well, the, I think that's a very yeah. Ed Sheeran thing to do. But that's yeah. isn't that? I would say that when a new Bond comes out, people submit songs. That's how that's always worked. No, it's not. You don't send in. There are so many songs that are no. out that are rejected Bond songs by bands that submitted a song that didn't get used, which they then use. Is there a process? Is there an open process by which? I mean, could we submit one? Yeah, that's what I was yeah. thinking. Uh, do they accept anything? They, they can't. <laughs> that can't be true. I thought that they would commission a cool art. It can't be like a Bake Off. <laughs> the, the, the last film they asked Billie Eilish to do yeah no she just got lucky she just happened no. to have the best one they sent in yeah. a million wow and hers exactly. just happened to be the and best they, one they listen to them blind as well they yeah. don't you know they, they, they don't prejudice it's like themselves. the voice it's like the voice <laughs> could be anyone that can't be true Dan because be they always pick the trendiest person in the world at the time don't they no yeah. I mean and Ed Sheeran has consistently been the second trendiest person in the world and he's just just keeps missing it. The reason I say it is I know that Radiohead had a rejected Bond song, so I'm trying to I'm trying to work back from from oh. there, and I'm pretty sure Johnny Cash had one as well. And Johnny I think Cash? this is a thing, yeah. But I can't I can't say for sure. Wow. Maybe they ask people to tender for it rather than anyone being able to send stuff. In. Oh yeah, I think they send. I I think they ask like <laughs> a group of people. I don't think it is open. Right. Yeah. It's not quite as open as that. Open season. Because you'd see there'd be a there'd be a thing every three years, wouldn't there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, have you guys heard of Dusan Sestic? Uh he's a, a no. composer of the Bosnian national anthem. We spoke about Bosnia yeah. earlier. He entered the competition to um to do the Bosnian national anthem. He didn't really want to win. He just wanted to get like second or third place. There was money for it. He like was quite into the old Yugoslavia. He didn't really care about the new Bosnia, but he thought, I'll get some money out of it because I'm a decent composer. Anyway, he won and he wrote the national anthem for <laughs> Bosnia. Uh, and then in 2009, someone noticed that it was remarkably similar to the theme tune of National Lampoon's Animal House, uh, the 1978 movie. Right. And it, when you listen to them both, they are almost identical. Like they, <laughs> there's no difference whatsoever. But bless him, he went on TV and they were all like, well, how come you made our national anthem the theme tune to National Lampoon's Animal House? And he said, oh, maybe as a young man I heard it and it kind of stuck in my head, and I, but I didn't deliberately plagiarize it. It just so happened. That is brilliant. Yeah. This is the problem with being um, national policies being decided by a write-in contest. 
This is why Canadian legal tender is called the loony and the toony. Oh, mm. what? <laughs> the, the, the $1 coin has a loon on it, so it's called a loony. And then they had a contest to name the $2 coin, which has a polar bear on it. And the winning entry was the toony. And now that is oh, actually no. what we call it. And it just makes us sound like a joke <laughs> country. <laughs> Without knowing the other options, Monica, I, I do think toony is quite good. <laughs> I think there's Sorry. a bit of Bodie McBoat face to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. We have Haven't they also... <laughs> the loony and the toony, the Adam's family. Yeah, it works. <laughs> Haven't they recently, just while we're talking about money and, and having mentioned Star Trek, there was the thing where you would Spockify your Canadian dollar, right? The, the guy who was on the picture looks so similar to Leonard oh, yeah. Nimoy from Star Trek uh, that you would draw uh, Spock ears on him and you would draw the hair, basically. Yes, it was called Spocking. Spocking. And the Bank of Canada uh, had to issue a statement saying that uh, it was legal to do but inappropriate. <laughs> and I think they've, they, from what I read, they've changed his image now on the bill. Is that right? There's a new oh, version probably. of the same guy, uh, just so it's less spockable. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think if you draw that Spock on any note, then Gene Roddenberry owns half your money. Yeah, and then um, a, spokes a spokesperson for another agency in Canada, financial agency, said uh, to the Bank of Canada, this is fine. As you say, it's perfectly legal. And I'm sure Sir Wilfrid Laurier would get it. Who is the man pictured off the bill who died in 1919? <laughs> <laughs> I've just got one more uh, theme tune I'll quickly want to bring up, which is the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. So we all know that theme tune. It's a, it's a Kraken song by Will Smith. And it was a song that he wrote despite not being necessarily asked to write it at the time. He kind of just did it and he showed it to, I believe it was Quincy Jones who was doing the music for the, for the show. And they said, yeah, you can go and do it. Obviously it's a massive hit. And when it was released in 1992 as a single, but here's the thing. I don't know if James, you bought singles as you were saying back in the day. Ooh, yeah. In 1992, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme tune was only released exclusively in the Netherlands and Spain. And that's where it charted. That's it. That's really interesting. Because when you said that, I thought to myself, how come I didn't buy that? Like, I was so sure that I would, if I was around at the time, I would have bought it. Because I bought yeah. Wiki Wiki Wild Wild West or whenever it was by Will Smith. So a Great song. I, yeah, I bought all his other crap. So I was really surprised. <laughs> James, James, did you buy Willennium? <laughs> that was a great album. Oh, an album. No, I was more of a singles buyer, really. Mm. Yeah. It's not a good album, Dan. <laughs> I'm it sorry. I think enough time album. has what passed that I'm able to have a pop at Willennium. <laughs> Keep the name of that album out of your dash. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that in 2024, the first ever theater production of Dracula will celebrate its 100th anniversary. Unfortunately, fans can't celebrate it in the venue it was performed in because it's currently occupied by an over-18s adult-themed crazy golf course called the House of Holes. Filthy. <laughs> so so Gosh. this is in Derby, a city in the UK. And I was there recently on the weekend <laughs> for a game of <laughs> mini golf. How was your yeah, <laughs> quick round? 
I was though no, I was there doing a ghost story festival, and uh, afterwards I was hanging out with this really cool guy called Chris Horton, and he said I've got a fish fact for you, and he told me he'd he'd passed the house of holes and made him laugh, and so yeah, so it is a very well known theater as well. It was called the Grand Theater. Then it just got repurposed over the years to be something new, and there was you know restaurants in its place and so on, and now there is mm. this uh, this amazing crazy golf, the house of holes. Yeah, can I just I'm sure I'm sure we'll. We'll talk more about Crazy Oil. Can I talk specifically about the House of Holes and Derby? Uh, yeah, yes. sure. I, d- I don't mean to cast any aspersions on it. I don't think it's terribly erotic. It doesn't seem to be from the website. Oh, it seems really? like a lot of it just seems to be novelty. Because I think that people at home, some people at home will have an image in their heads mm. of, yeah. of what mm. it is. Yeah. But let's 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 sort of give context then through images. Mm. One of the holes, uh, you have to hit the ball through a bunch of standing dildos, for example. Um, yes, I'm, I'm not saying it's totally unerotic. There's, a, uh, there's another one every... where, yep. <laughs> for some reason, there's a lot of uh, blow-up dolls that are uninflated hanging on washing lines just hanging in the vicinity of the hole itself um yeah the the area where you play pool because you know these places indoor places have like you can play arcades and stuff the ba- yeah. bit where you play pool uh is called anal butt um <laughs> what yeah and anal has a four Sorry. instead of the second a in anal so a n four l uh but what's that got to do with pool what does that mean? Not quite sure. I couldn't get to the bottom of that one, um, but it's it's there. Surely the phrase anal and butt are sort of yeah achieving the same. Feel, feeling a little redundant to me personally. It's definitely a redundant adjective, isn't it? How's your butt? Well, it's very anal. <laughs> but I don't know what this, what's in the water in Derby, but there was a newspaper piece a couple of months ago. Derby is now about to get its second erotic mini golf venue <laughs> it's really the, popular the, the new um glory holes golf venue <laughs> will apparently include risque items and decor and um some derby themed holes as well so that's nice that's cool <laughs> that's good can i quickly just because let's give this fact just a tiny bit of substance before we get into erotic golf um i just want to quickly say that the production just for context uh was the first ever dracula production and it was put on in the early 1920s and it was mm. a show that was sanctioned and approved by florence stoker who was the widow of bram stoker and this was the production that became the sort of official theater production that as it traveled around the uk and then went international cast in its lead bella lugosi who became as we all know the iconic dracula in film and weirdly the final performance that bella lugosi ever did as dracula on stage was back in Derby at another theatre just around the corner from the Grand some 20 mm-hmm. odd years later. So Derby does have a real Dracula connection as a result of this uh, Very interesting. Play. And Lugosi, so he got the role in 1927 when the play moved to the USA. That's when Lugosi entered the scene. And then in the 50s, it was when he toured again and came back to Derby and did a big English tour of this show and he got really upset because apparently the audiences were laughing sometimes because Dracula was no longer the big scary thing it had been uh, it was the early 50s you know people have been through a bit since the 20s they, um, they're not as scared and uh, yeah it seems to have prompted the end of his career which is very sad and it was also this play was also very important for the image of Dracula the guy who wrote it a guy called Hamilton Dean he made Dracula appear as that more modern suave sort of coat wearing cocktail drinking kind of character rather than Bram's just all out vampire chaos energy zombie like stuff does it he drink cocktails 
Doesn't he? He's a passion fruit martini. <laughs> Sorry, he does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was actually one earlier theatre production of Dracula, which came out eight days before the novel came out. This was, if you did a novel, someone else could make a play of it. And there's not much you can do about it unless you put on your own play. And so what Bram Stoker did was he had a dramatic reading of his book on stage they had to have it open for the paying public, so they would put uh, bills up half an hour before it started, saying Dracula on in half an hour. And two people bought tickets for it and sat in the audience uh, while a couple of actors sort of just read through the book. And from them doing that, it meant that no one else could put a play on because he owed copyright on the theatre production. How amazing. Yeah. Monica, have you done that with Really Good Actually? I, sh- I should do, to stop someone doing a bootleg play. <laughs> yeah. And that was basically what my experience of doing the Edinburgh Fringe was, was going out half an hour before the show, being like, anybody, yeah. somebody? And then, uh, you know, yeah. mildly entertaining two people. Chills, actual chills remembering That's that. That's everyone's Edinburgh, yeah. Ah. Okay, Dan, well, we've done the Dracula thing. Can we go back to the erotic... Uh mini golf let's do it (laughs) i just remembered when you were talking about that that i have played not played golf but i've used a golf club shaped like a penis at the penis museum in Reykjavik. they have one uh, and you can sort of pick it up and play with it and yeah it's like a it's it's just the head part of the golf club is shaped like a penis but it's not it's not for a serious golfer right as in it's not built for proper play you know master's conditions I don't think it adheres to the official no. um, USPJ rules. Right. It's like a walking stick full of bagels. You're not going to use it as an actual <laughs> assist <laughs> as a walking stick. Um, I think there's a link between the original boom in Crazy Golf and the current Derby-based boom in erotic golf. Okay. So when was the original boom? 20s and 30s. Um, mm-hmm. Some some Lots of sources say that it completely went out when the Great Depression happened. But actually... It didn't really. It, it actually boomed during the early 30s. Um, during that period, apparently the USA built 25,000 mini golf courses. It was described as a devastating craze in the Times in, in 1930. And I think the theory behind it is that property value had collapsed and lo- the value of lots of things had collapsed. And people started their own tiny businesses to generate small amounts of income. You know, it doesn't have to be anything huge but it's it's a small local thing on, on whatever kind of waste ground or, or land you've got you know some restaurants turned it like half the restaurant became a mini golf course and the rest of it stayed a restaurant so maybe times of financial hardship are when you get a lot more mini golf because you get shops that are closed or empty so the new um glory hole golf is is the site of the old gap store in derby you know you've got retail space available what is a glory hole if not a gap Ah, so anyway that's my economic theory no it's a really yeah it's a really good theory it's almost a thesis rather than a podcast isn't it but yeah (laughs) um mini golf doesn't use golf balls yes i do there's no (laughs) (laughs) there are there are special mini golf balls they're kind of more rubbery. They're more right, rubbery. They bounce more. Yeah. And there's a... Sta- they, they, I, this, I find this mad. There's the World Crazy Golf Championships. I mean, there are a few World Crazy Golf Championships. One is in Hastings, and normally, apparently, they only get about three overseas players each year. So the extent to which it's world is a bit uh, debatable. <laughs> but they don't tell you uh, at the World Crazy Golf Championships what the ball is until the day before it starts. Okay, but it's always going to be spherical. It's um, always going to be spherical. I'm pretty sure about that. 
but and then other championships they will they'll let you play a different ball on every hole and the only rule is that once you've started a hole you have to play the same ball all the way through like to the end. normal golf is yeah. that true oh how about local if i was playing mini golf like we play in uh Narrabeen in australia they're using special balls i think they'll be more rubbery for sure oh, if you yeah. if you check them yeah who would have thought this would be the fact that blew my mind most in this <laughs> whole run of nine years golf again <laughs> um go on this is i'm afraid it's back to the it's back to a tangent from the original erotic mini golf thing oh yeah just that it was on um you know this new place opening up is going to be called glory holes golf uh and we got an email in the fish inbox recently uh subject line gibbon glory hole action oh my god and i know this story this is incredible <laughs> this is a gibbon in a, a a zoo or a sanctuary this was a female gibbon and she was living on her own and um she got pregnant and it was it was basically a virgin birth and it was it was so exciting that for the, the scientists. They thought, I can't believe this. Anyway, they did a bit of an investigation and it turned out, obviously, it was not a virgin birth. In between her enclosure and the next door neighbour, male Gibbons enclosure, was a nine millimetre hole through which they had managed to successfully breed <laughs> and become parents. <laughs> nine so millimetres. They were just sort of both mushing up against the wall i'm afraid so life finds a way life yeah wow that's a scene i don't want to see in jurassic park (laughs) i would like to hear david attenborough do one of his little jokes you know when he sort of makes the animals a fool where he's like our nest is as good a place as any and then (laughs) okay it's time for our final fact of the show and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that in 2009, an aide to the Canadian Prime Minister called 10 Downing Street to offer condolences for the death of Margaret Thatcher. In fact, she wasn't dead. It was a misunderstanding due to the death of the Canadian Transport Minister's cat, who was also called Thatcher. <laughs> so Superb. Good. Yeah. Really what good. A, what a call. What a call. Fly on the wall at that call. Yeah. A moggy, not a maggy. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Was that you, Dan? No, someone else. No, 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 that's the headline of the Guardian article. Uh, that that's from. Amazing. Mm. So, yeah, this was a black tie dinner in Toronto. Uh, 2,000 <laughs> Canadian Conservatives were there, and many of them got a text message saying, simply Thatcher has died. And, <laughs> and um, Dimitri Sudas, who was the aide to the Prime Minister, who was Stephen Harper at the time, he was sent to write a letter of condolence and he rang Buckingham Palace and 10 Downing Street to kind of work out what they should say and you know, and offer, mm. offer condolences as well. Uh, and then he found out that they hadn't died and it turned out that Transport Minister John Baird had a 16-year-old grey cat called Thatcher uh, and Sadly, that cat had died, um, but he denied sending the text later on. But there definitely was a text that was sent to all these people about the cat. This is like international incident version of David's dead on Big Brother. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The greatest TV moment ever. There was a famous David who died. David Bowie. Yeah. Bowie. Uh, yeah. does, does someone in the building know who I don't know why I'm telling a story everyone knows it better than me apparently. Monica you can tell it Mono, <laughs> no no yo please you tell it I've actually only seen the clip okay so in the Big Brother household that year was Angie Bowie the first wife of David Bowie and also in the house that year was David Guest who was Liza Minnelli's ex-husband right. Angie gets called in while David Guest is having a sleep in his bed everyone knows he's having a sleep <laughs> so he's not around and she gets told that David Bowie has died so she is right. uh, 
obviously uh, she didn't like her ex-husband, but she's also very distressed because he was a huge part of her life. She comes out, she's trying to keep it secret. And one of the other Americans who's staying in the house comes up and says, are you okay? And she says, you can't tell anyone, but David's dead. And this other woman (laughs) immediately freaks out because she thinks it's David Guest who's died. But Angie hasn't made the connection. So Angie's kind of going, God, I didn't think you were that big a Bowie fan. I can't see how this has erupted. <laughs> and it causes chaos in the house for five minutes. It's it's TV at its finest. Well, imagine that, but with 2,000 Canadian Conservatives. Yeah. <laughs> what a scene it must have been. The true Patriot love tribute dinner. Oh, is that what it was? That's what it was called. A military families honouring thing. But Canadian politics moniker is... Is fabulous. Is it? <laughs> well, I feel like there is. I feel like there, there is a list of political scandals in Canada on Wikipedia, and you know some oh, of them yeah. are pretty dry, like the usual grift, you know, or, or, or bribery or slightly dodgy dealings. But there are some. There are some fun ones. Tunagate might be my favourite. Oh, yeah. Tunagate. Were you were you involved in Tunagate, Monica? Um, Not to my knowledge, but I'll never admit it. If so, you'll never catch <laughs> <Sorry>. me. <laughs> Tunigate, actually, think about it now. Tunigate, way too long ago. You're clear, you're clear, you're clear. Um, basically, there, there were a million cans of decomposing tuna. That was that was the central problem, uh-huh. right? And it, it wasn't really, really, really unsafe, but it had started to go off before it was put in the cans. The firm involved was called Starkist, and they said, no, you just, the, these inspectors, they just don't like fish. That's their problem. And they said, and we'll close down our plant and you'll lose all these jobs. And, you know, and that's when it becomes a political thing. Because then the fisheries minister said, oh, yeah, it's probably, it's fine. Yeah, all this stuff, it's great. It's actually good. And he got a panel together uh, to say, look, can you just assess this tuna, please? And they said, yeah, this this is rotting tuna in these cans. And he says, okay, I think we need a different panel. And he got a different panel together who eventually said, yes, these million tons of rotting tuna are fine. And then he resigned. Yeah, and I don't think much of the tuna was eaten in the end. And then the phone went bust anyway. So That's a very classic Canadian scandal where it's like it, it threatened to really kick off and ultimately they just, nobody really consumed <laughs> the tuna. And it was sort of fine. That's like the other great Canadian political scandal, the Fuddle-Duddle incident. What's this? The Fuddle-Duddle incident in 1971 happened to the first Prime Minister Trudeau, our current Prime Minister's father, who was accused of having spoken or at least mouthed unparliamentary language in the House of Commons. He uh, seemed to have been caught mouthing the words fuck off, but when pressed by television reporters would only admit to having moved his lips. So they were like, what were you thinking when you moved your lips? And his response was, what is the nature of your thoughts when you say fuddle duddle or something fuddle like that? Duddle. Implying that he had said fuddle duddle instead of fuck off. Right. That's good. Yeah. If no one's heard you, yeah. you'd, you know, you're across the room from them. Well, Terrible. then in 2015, his son actually stated on the record that his dad had not said fuddle duddle. And this is a big scandal. Minor scandal. But that's sort of the scale. It's like someone, <laughs> some, that's always the scale. It's always a little bit funny. Like someone uh, threw a pie in Jean Chrétien's face in the 90s. And that was quite <laughs> a big quite deal. Good. The pies were actually a coordinated, ongoing assault on a group called the Antartistes, who were a Canadian satirical political group. And they even released a hit list of people they wanted to get (laughs) with pies, (laughs) including Celine Dion and Conrad Black and Chrétien. And then they were successful in pieing Chrétien twice. Oh, that's got a sting. The pies, were they they the kind of clown pies where it's like just custard or is it actual like apple pies? Cream pies. Like, oh, it's just cream pies. It's, ah. it, it may even have been shaving cream or just like 
what you guys would unfortunately call squirty cream. Yeah. <laughs> squirty cream. It's not a nice thing to say, and I'm sorry to say it. <laughs> Speaking of um, shaving cream, I can't believe we managed to get onto shaving cream. Um, William Lyon Mackenzie King, mm -hmm. who was Prime Minister of Canada for 22 years. My favorite. Well, I'm not surprised because he did seances and stuff, right, Dan? Yeah. Uh, but he also <laughs> used to see symbols in his shaving cream in the morning, which he thought would predict the future. Yeah, wow. what an extraordinary guy. I mean, he was he was prime minister for 21 years, which possibly is still the record length for anyone to do it. He had quite a tragic family life. He lost all of his family during the war. And uh, so as a result, turned like many people did to spirituality as a thing. But what many people didn't realize at the time was he was taking that spirituality into the, into the office with him as a prime minister and getting guidance from the spirits of Leonardo da Vinci and his deceased dogs uh, the shaving uh, foam thing he would shave and then the shaving foam would go into the water on the in the um sink kind of thing uh, and at one stage he saw a polar bear and an eagle and the polar bear was supposed to represent like russia or the soviet union i should say and the eagle supposed to represent america and they were kind of fighting in shaving cream wow. and then a dog appeared in the shaving cream which he thought symbolized canada and then it came and helped to push the bear off the eagle. And that was kind of what? him thinking that he, what side he needs to be in the Cold War. He needs to be on as the if, As if he didn't know what side he should probably be on in the Cold War. <laughs> I think that probably just confirmed his suspicions. <laughs> I do feel like a polar bear would be fairly easy to see in shaving cream. Yeah. Like I'm wondering. Yeah. If the shapes he was seeing were sort of like, you know, I saw a vision in my shaving cream of a cloud meeting sort of a fog. Yeah. Oh my God. What a character. Yeah, amazing yeah, guy. He was. I was having a look through the old uh, the old fish inbox, um, podcast at qi.com. Really good yeah. fact that we got in from, uh, from John Ford. So thank you, John. This is something maybe you've done at Monica. It's that Canada flies a new flag over its parliament every single day. Every single day there's a new flag. And they give the used one to a Canadian. And you can apply hmm. to get your own flag. And you think I have done this. I, well, <laughs> guess it's possible. Um, I feel like you haven't anymore. <laughs> I haven't quite, no, but it's nice to know that I have the option. Well, you have the option, but unfortunately, oh. you won't get the flag. So this is a mad oh. thing. The current waiting time is 100 years. <laughs> it's more than a century because so many people what? have applied. Wow. So, and they mentioned this on the website. Like, it's a totally normal thing. Yeah, they say the current waiting time is more than 100 years. And so you can either log on and make a request. Why would you? Or you can change your details if you made a request, you know, five years ago and you're moving house now. Just to keep it updated. But why would you do that either? Are you allowed to do it for your next generation? Can you, exactly. Yeah. Can it go to the descendants? I don't think I'll know any of my hundred year from now descendants well enough to care whether or not they get a flag. <laughs> it's also like not hard to get. Like if, it's not very special. It's only been up over Parliament for one day. Yep. You could just <laughs> yeah. get your own flag. This is the kind of shit I buy on eBay, Monica. <laughs> don't knock it. This is, this is all part of my divorce. That's giving unreasonable behavior to me, actually. <laughs> Have you been reading about William Amos from the Liberal Party? In the last few no. last few months, um, very recently he was on a, a Zoom call, parliamentary Zoom call, uh, and he had to apologise because he said I urinated without realising I was on camera, hmm. uh, and no. the 
amazing thing was is that the month earlier he'd also been recorded in the nude during a virtual session of the Canadian Parliament. So twice in two months. The first time he'd been out for a jog and he was kind of getting changed while the session was going on uh, and they could see... See it all. Yeah. See the right honourable member. See his loony and his toony. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I can see myself um, not falling for that. Just I can see myself doing that. Twice in a row? You quickly check. Maybe not twice in a row. <laughs> I think one's bitten in this case, right? Yeah, I would definitely get a post-it for the camera after the first time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, would I? I don't know. No, you would think I couldn't possibly do that yeah. again. You, that's what you think. That's what you think. Oh, my God. That was the stupidest day of my life. No more mistakes on that front. And then you just go along and, and you know, did you say he was urinating into a cup or something? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. As far as I can tell, because this kind of thing has now happened. You know, we're pretty deep in the pandemic. It's now happened a number of times. <laughs> some fairly high profile people. And it has, as far as I'm aware, never happened to a woman. It's just men yep. who I don't know, haven't thought it through or aren't worried enough. Yeah. I can't even believe that you're saying that you think this could happen to you. This would never <laughs> happen to me. <laughs> There's no world in which I would be like, okay, I'm doing a work Zoom. I'm gonna quickly get fully nude. No one has to know. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Monica. At Monica Heisey. Yep. Or if you'd like to book a round of golf at the House of Holes, you can head to at House of Holes UK. It genuinely has amazing reviews. Do check it out. Uh, Everyone loved it there. Everyone loved it. Or you can go to at No Such Thing, which is our actual Twitter handle, and you can get through to us there. Or you can email us at podcast at qi.com. Also, do check out our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of the previous episodes are up there. But the main, main thing that you need to do is get to a bookshop or an online bookshop and get really good actually by monica heisey it is storming the charts here as we speak it's been in the uh sunday times bestsellers list for four weeks uh it is an absolute rockin book it's incredibly funny so um do get it now and otherwise come back because we're going to be back with another episode next week and we'll see you then goodbye <laughs> <laughs>